Section 7 of Porgy by DeBose Hayward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Denise Ray. Part 6. October blew down from the north, bracing and frosty clear. It sent a breeze racing like mad over the bay and bouncing into the court to toss the clotheslines like lanyards of signal flags. The torpid city and wide and somblerous marshes were strung to sudden life and laughed up at it the far crisp blue of the sky. Out in the harbor mouth a faint wisp of smoke grew and blackened, and presently beneath it the rusty hull of a tramp lifted from the Atlantic and thrust his blunt nose into the waters of the bay. Summer had gone. Soon the cotton would be coming through. It was nine o'clock, and still Porgy lingered in the court. His blood leaped swiftly in his veins, and he experienced that sweet upsurge of life that the North knows with the bursting of spring, but that comes most keenly to the sultry lands with the strong breath of autumn. Yet, when he looked up at the sky, a vague presence of disaster darkened his spirit. He sat beside Bess in the doorway with his eyes upon the child in her lap. After a while he took the baby into his arms, and then the foreboding suddenly became pain. He looked up and met the gaze of the woman. It was there in her eyes also, plain for him to see. Out in the silence of the street a sound commenced to grow. Only a faint, far murmur at first. It gathered weight, until it became a steady rumble, only a faint far murmur at first. It gathered weight until it became a steady rumble, with a staccato clip, 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 running through it. There were a few women and children about, and they ran to the entrance to see. But Porgy and Bess sat and looked fixedly at the bay, where it lay beyond the gate. Then the drays came, and the bay was blotted out by the procession. The great mules, fat and strong from their summer in pasture, moved swiftly with a sharp click of shoes, and the drivers cracked their whips and laughed down at the crowd. The low platforms of the vehicles seemed almost to brush the ground, and upon them, clear to the top of the entrance arch, the bales towered, with the fibers showing in dazzling white patches, where the bagging was torn. Twenty or more in the train they passed scarcely had the rumble receded in the distance than a burst of heavy laughter sounded in the street and two tall figures strode the entrance and into the group of women and children there was a bright flash from bandanas and one of the men swung a child to his shoulder loud greetings followed and another burst of laughter heavy deep-chested and glad from an upper window a woman's voice called come on sister let's we go down the stevedore is coming back. Porgy turned toward Bess and moistened his lips with his tongue. Then he spoke in a low, husky voice. Us ain't talk much since the picnic, Bess, you and me. But I gots to talk now. I gots to know how you and me stand. Bess regarded him dumbly. For a moment, the look which Serena had seen when she had tried to take the baby brushed her face. Then it passed leaving it hopeless. Porgy leaned forward. You is wanting to go with Crown when he come? Then she answered, 
When I take that dope, I know then that I ain't your kin. And when Crown put his hand on me that day, I run to him like water. Some day dope coming again. And some day Crown going to put his hand on my throat. It going to be like dying then. But I got to talk the truth to you. When the time come, I'm going to go. If there want no crown, Porgy whispered. Then before she could answer, he hurried on. If there was only just a baby and Porgy, what then? The odd incandescent flared in her face, touching it with something eternal and beautiful, beyond the power of human flesh to convey. She took the child from Porgy with a hungry, enfolding gesture. Then her composure broke. Oh, for God's sake, Porky, don't let that man come and handle me. If you is willing to keep me, then let me stay. If he just don't put his hot hand on me, I can be good. I can remember, I can be happy. She broke off abruptly and hid her face against that of the child. Porky patted her arm. You ain't needs to be afraid, he assured her. And you got your man. Ain't you got Porky? What kind of a nigger you think you gots anyway, for like another nigger could carry his woman? No, sir. You got your man now. You gots, Porgy. From behind a sea island, the full October moon lifted its chill disk and strewed the bay with cold white fire. The lights were out in Catfish Row, except for a shaft of firelight that fell across the dark from Serena's room and a faint flicker in the cookshop where Maria was getting her fire laid in readiness for the early breakfast. A cry sounded in the court, which was quickly muffled, then followed low, insolent laughter. Maria was at her door instantly. Across the court, a man could be seen for one moment, seated on Serena's washbench, then behind him the door closed with a bang, shutting off the shaft of firelight. Maria crossed the court, and when she had reached the man's side, he looked up. The moonlight fell upon his face. It was Crown. "'What you doing here?' she asked him. "'Just dropping in on a few old friend.' "'Come down to the shop,' she commanded. "'I got to have talk with you.' He arose obediently and followed her. Maria turned on the lamp and faced about as Crown entered the room. He had to bend his head to pass under the lintel, and his shoulders brushed the sides of the opening. The big negress stood for a long moment looking at him. Her gaze took in the straight legs with their springing thighs, straining the fabric of the cotton pants, the slender waist, and the almost unbelievable outward flare of the chest to the high, straight span of the shoulders. A look of deep sadness grew in her somber face. With a body like that, she said at last, why you was coming around hunting for dat? Crown laughed uneasily, stepped into the room and sat at a table. He placed his elbows upon it, hunched his shoulders forward with a withering of muscle beneath the shirt, then dropped his chin in his hands and regarded the woman. I know de dis here niggers, he replied. Day is a decent lot. Day wouldn't give no nigger away to de white folks. Dat to God, truth. Only there is another way of settling up her debt. Serena, he asked with a sidelong look and laugh. Dat sister got to fear God in she heart. I ain't afraid none of her. After a moment of silence, he asked abruptly, Best still living with the cripple? 
Yes. And she a happy, decent woman. You best leave her she alone. For God's sakes, what do you think I come to this damn town for? I ain't just hunting for that. I'm after my woman. Maria placed her hands on the table opposite the man and bent over to look into his face. Almond is all very much the same, she said in a low, persuasive voice. They comes and they goes. One satisfy a man quick as another. Day is lots a better looking gal than Bess. She fixed for life now with that boy. I ask you, go and leave her. Give she a chance. It take long time to learn one woman, he said slowly. Me and Bess done fight. That all these fiber years gone. You ain't gonna leave she then. Then was an unusual note of pleading in the heavy voice. Not tell. Hell freeze. After a moment he arose and turned to her. I gots to go out now. I ain't sure whether I'm going away tonight or wait for tomorrow night. I'm going to look around and see how the land lay, but I'll be seeing you again before I goes. Maria regarded him for a long moment. The look of sadness in her face deepened to a heavy melancholy, but she said nothing. Crown started for the street with his long, swaggering stride. The big woman watched him until he turned to the north at the entrance and passed from view. Then she locked the door and, with a deep sigh, walked to her own room. Porgy opened his eyes suddenly. The window, which had been luminous when he went to sleep, was now darkened. He watched it intently. Slowly he realized that parts of the little square still showed the moonlit waters of the bay, and that only the center was blocked out by an intervening mass. Then the mass moved, and Porgy saw that it was the torso and shoulders of a man. The window was three feet in width, yet the shoulders seemed to brush both sides of it as the form bent forward. The sash was down, and presently there came a sound as though hands were testing it to see whether it could be forced up. Porgy was lying on his back. He reached his left hand over the covers and let the fingers touch ever so lightly the sleeping faces of first the baby, then the woman. His right hand slid beneath his pillow, and his strong, slender fingers closed about the handle of a knife. At the window, the slight testing noise continued. It was certainly after midnight when Maria looked from her doorway, for the moon was tottering on the western wall, and while she stood looking, slowly it dropped over and vanished. The vague forebodings that she had felt when she talked to Crown earlier in the evening had kept sleep from her. With each passing hour her fears increased, and with them a sense of imminence that finally forced her to get up, slip on a wrapper, and prepare to make the rounds of the court. But on opening the door she was at once reassured. The square stood before her like a vast cistern, brimmed with misty dark and roofed with a lid of sky. A cure crawled forward on his belly from a nearby nook and licked one of her bare feet with his moist, warm tongue. Above her, in the huge honeycomb of the building, someone was snoring in a slow, steady rhythm. The big negress drew a deep sigh of relief and turned back towards her room. A sound of cracking wood snapped the silence. 
Then, like a flurry of small bells, came a shiver of broken glass on the stones. Maria spun around and tried to locate the sound, but no noise followed. Silence flowed back over the court and settled probably into its recesses. The faint, not unpleasant rhythm of the snoring came instantly forward. Suddenly, Maria turned her face quick with apprehension. She drew her wrapper closely about her and crossed to Porgy's door. With only half of the distance traversed, she heard a sound from the room. It was more of a muffled thump than anything else, and with it something very like a gasp. When her hand closed over the knob, all was silent again, except that she could hear a long, slightly shuddering breath then came a sound that caused her flesh to prickle with primal terror it was so unexpected there in the chill silent night it was porgy's laugh but different out of the stillness it swelled suddenly deep aboriginal lustful then it stopped short maria heard the baby cry out then bessie's voice sleep sleepy and mystified for god's sake porgy what you laughing bout dad all right honey came the answer don't you be worrying you got's porgy now he look out of his woman ain't i done tells you you got a man now maria turned the knob entered the room and closed the door quickly behind her night trailed westward across the city in the east out beyond the ocean's rim essential light trembled upward and seemed to absorb rather than quench the morning stars out of the sliding plains of mist that hung like spent breath above the city, shapes began to emerge and assume their proper values. Far in the upper air over Catfish Row, a speck appeared. It took a long descending spiral and became two, then three. Around a wide circle the speck swung, as though hung by wires from a lofty pivot. The light brightened perceptibly. The specks dropped to a lower level, increased in size, and miraculously became a dozen. Then some of them dropped in from the circumference of the circle, cutting lines across like the spokes of a wheel, and from time to time flapping indolent wings. Dark and menacing, when they flowed to the westward, they would turn easily towards the east, and the sun, still below the horizon, would gild their bodies with ruddy gold as they sailed breast on toward it. Down, down they drooped, reaching low and yet lower levels, until at last they seemed to brush the waterfront buildings with their somber wings. Then gradually they narrowed to a small circle that patrolled the air directly over a shape that lay awash in the rising tide, across the street from Catfish Row. Suddenly, from the swinging circle, a single bird plained down and lit with an awkward, hopping step directly before the object. For a moment he regarded it with bleak predatory eyes, then flew back to his fellows. A moment later the whole flock swooped down, and the shape was hidden by flapping wings and black awkward bodies that hopped about and fought inward to the center of the group. A negro who had been sleeping under an overturned bateau awoke and rubbed his eyes. Then he sprang up and, seizing an oar, beat the birds away with savage blows. He bent over the object for a moment, then turned and raced for the street with eyes shining white. "'For God's sake, folks!' he cried. "'Come here quick!' "'Here, crown, and he done dead!' A group of three white men stood over the body. One was the plainclothesman with the goatee and stick, 
who had investigated the Robbins murder. Behind him stood a uniformed policeman. The third, a stout, leisurely individual, was stooping over the body in the act of making an examination. "'What do you make of it, coroner?' asked the plainclothesman. "'Knife between fifth and sixth ribs must have gone straight through the heart.' "'Well, he had it coming to him,' the detective observed. "'They tell me he is the nigger crown who killed Robbins last April. "'That give us the widow to work on for a starter. "'By the way, and Hennessy tells me that he used to run with that dope case we had up last August. "'She's living in the road, too. Let's go over and have a look.' The coroner cast an apprehensive glance at the forbidding structure across the way. "'Can't be so sure,' he cautioned. "'Corpse might have been washed up. Ties on the flood.' "'Well, I'm going to have a look at those two women anyway,' the plainclothesman announced. "'That place is alive with crooks. I'd like to get something on it that would just justify closing it up as a public nuisance and throwing the whole lot of them out in the street.' One murder and a happy dust riot already this summer, and here we are again. Then turning to the policeman, he gave his orders. Get the wagon and take the body in. Then you had better come right back. We might have some arrest. The coroner and I'll investigate while you're gone. He turned away towards the row, assuming that he would be followed. All right, Cap, what do you say? he called. The coroner shook his ponderous figure down into his clothes, turned with evident reluctance, and joined him. All right, he agreed, but all I need is a couple of witnesses to identify the body at the inquest. Across the street, a small negro boy detached himself from the base of one of the gateposts and darted through the entrance. A moment later, the white men strode into an absolutely empty square. The heels made a sharp sound on the flags, and the walls threw a clear echo down upon them a cure that had been left napping in the sun woke with a start looked about in a bewildered fashion gave a frightened yelp and belted through to the doorway it was all clearly not to the taste of the coroner and he cast an uneasy glance about him where do we go he asked that's the widow's room over there if she hasn't moved we'll give it a look first said the detective the door was off the latch, and without knocking he kicked it open and walked in. The room was small but immaculately clean. Beneath a patched white quilt could be seen the form of a woman. Two other women were sitting in utter silence beside the bed. The form under the covers moaned. "'Drop that,' the detective commanded, and answer some questions. The moaning stopped. "'Where were you yesterday and last night?' The reply came slowly, as though speaking were great pain. I've been sick in dis bed now, tree day and night. We've been sitting with she, nursing she, all dat time, one of the women said, and the other supplement, dat the God truth. You would swear to that, asked the coroner. Three voice, voices answered in chorus, yes, boss, we swear to that. There you are, said the coroner to the plainclothesman, an airtight alibi. The detective regarded him for a moment with supreme contempt. Then he stepped forward and jerked the sheet from Serena's face, which lay upon the pillow as immobile as a model done in brown clay. "'You know damn well that you were out yesterday,' he snapped. "'I have a good mind to get the wagon and carry you in.' Silence followed. "'What do you say to that?' he demanded. 
but Serena had nothing to say, and neither had her handmaidens. Then he turned a menacing frown upon them, as they sat motionless with lowered eyes. Well? They jumped slightly, and their eyes showed white around the iris. Suddenly they began to speak almost in unison. We swear to God, we done been here with she three day. Oh, hell, said the exasperated detective. What's the use? You might as well argue with a parrot cage. That woman is just as ill at this moment as you are, he said to his unenthusiastic associate when they were again in the sunlight. Her little burlesque show proves that, if nothing else. But there is her case all prepared. I don't believe she killed Crown. She doesn't look like that kind. She either is just plain safe, or she has something entirely different on her chest. But there's her story, and you'll never break in without witnesses of your own. And you'll never get them. The coroner was not a highly sensitized individual, but as he moved across the empty court, he found it difficult to control his nerves under the scrutiny which he felt leveled upon him from behind a hundred shuttered windows. Twice he caught himself looking covertly over his shoulders, and as he went he bore hopefully away towards the entrance. But the detective was intent upon his task, and presently called him back. "'This is the cripple's room,' he said. "'He ain't much of a witness. I tried to break him in the Robin's case, but he wouldn't talk. I want to have a look at the woman, though.' He kicked the door open suddenly. Porgy and Bess were seated by the stove, eating breakfast from tin pans. On the bed in the corner the baby lay. Porgy paused with his spoon halfway to his mouth and looked up. Bess kept her eyes on the pan and continued to eat. The coroner stopped in the doorway and made a business-like show of writing in a notebook. "'What's your name?' he asked Porgy. Cripple studied him for a long moment taking in the amble proportions of the figure and the heavy but not unsympathetic face. Then he smiled one of his fleeting, ingenuous smiles. "'Just Porgy,' he said. "'You knows me, boss. You is done give me plenty a penny on King Charles Street. Of course, you're the goat man.' "'I didn't know you without your wagon,' he said amiably. Then, becoming businesslike, he asked, "'This nigger crown.' You knew him by sight, didn't you? Porgy debated with himself for a moment, looked again into the coroner's face, was reassured by what he saw there, and replied, Yes, boss, I remember um when he seemed to come here long ago. You could identify him, I suppose? Porgy looked blank. You know him if you saw him again? Yes, boss, I, I know him. The coroner made a note in his book closed it with an air of finality and put it in his pocket. During the brief interview, the detective had been making an examination of the room. The floor had been recently scrubbed and was still damp in the corners. He gave the clean pine boards a close scrutiny, then paused before the window. The bottom of the lower sash had been broken and several of the small square planes were missing. So, this is where you killed Crown, eh? he announced. The words fell into the silence and were absorbed by it, causing them to seem theatrical and unconvincing. Neither Porgy nor Bess spoke. Their faces were blank and noncommittal. After a full moment, the woman said, I, I ain't understand, boss. Nobody here ain't killed Crown. 
My husband, he fought through that window yesterday when his leg gave way. He a cripple. Anyone see him do it? inquired the coroner from the door. Oh, yes, boss, replied Bess, turning to him. Three or four of the men's was in the street. They will tell you all about him. Yes, of course. More witnesses, sneered the detective. Then turning to the coroner, he asked with a trace of sarcasm in his tone, That satisfies you fully, I suppose. The coroner's nerves were becoming edgy. For God's sakes, he retorted, do you expect me to believe that a cripple could kill a two-hundred-pound buck, then tote him a hundred yards? Well, I've got what I need now anyway. As far as I'm concerned, I'm through. They were passing the door of Maria's shop when the detective caught sight of something within that held his gaze. You could do as you please, he told his unwilling companion, but I'm going to have a look in here. I've never been able to get anything on this woman, but she is a bad influence in the neighborhood. I trust her just as far as I could throw her. The coroner heaved a sigh of resignation, and they stepped back and entered the shop. Upon the flooring, directly before the door, and not from it, was a pool of blood. Standing over the pool was a table, and upon it lay the carcass of a shark. Maria sat on a bench behind the table. As the men entered, she swung an immense cleaver downward. A cross-section of the shark detached itself and fell away on a pile of similar slices. A thin stream of blood dribbled from the table, augmenting the pool upon the floor. Maria did not raise her eyes from her task. Again the cleaver swung up and whistled downward. From the street sounded the clatter of the returning patrol. "'I'll wait for you in the wagon,' said the coroner hastily, and stepped back into the sunlight. But he was not long alone. The uninterrupted swinging of the dripping cleaver was depressing, and the enthusiasm of his associate waned. The bell clanged. Hoofs struck sparks from the cobbles, and the strong but uncertain arm of the law was withdrawn to attend other and more congenial business. The sound from the retreating wagon dwindled and ceased. For a moment Catfish Row held its breath, then its windows and doors flew open and poured its life out into the incomparable autumn weather. The crisis had passed. There had been no arrest. Serena stepped forth, her arms filled with the mornings washed. Ain't it hard to be a nigger? Someone sang in a loud, clear voice, and everybody laughed. Down the street, like an approaching freight train, came the drays, jarring the building and rattling the windows as the heavy tires rang against the cobbles. Bess and Porgy came out with the others and seated themselves against the wall in the gracious sunlight. Of the life, yet apart from it, sufficient unto each other, they did not join in the loud talk and badinage that was going on about them. Like people who had come on a long, dark journey, they were content to sit and breathe deeply of the sun. The baby was sleeping in Bess's arms, and from time to time she would sing a stab to, to it in a soft, husky voice. Into the court strode a group of stevedores. Their strong white teeth flashed in the sunshine, and their big panther-like bodies moved easily among the women and children that crowded about them. Well, the gals, called one in a loud, resonant voice, must be they know that this is payday. 
Two women were sitting near Porgy and Bess rose and went forward with their arms twined about each other's waist. In a few minutes, they were out of the crowd again, each looking up with admiring eyes into the face of one of the men. Men's and women's ain't the same, said Porgy. One moment ago, dem gals been living with de own men's. Den de storm take em. Now, day is forget em already and giving dem love to de next. No, day is different for true, replied Bress. And you wouldn't never understand. All two dem gals got baby for keep alive. She heaved a deep sigh and then added, Day is just woman and nigger at dat. Day is doing the best day can, dat all. She was looking down at the baby while she spoke, and when she raised her eyes and looked at Porgy, he saw that they were full of tears. But you, Bess, you's different from dat, he said with a gently interrogating note in his voice. Dat cause God ain't make but one porgy, she told him, and any woman gets to be decent with you. But I gots for to tell you the truth. Without porgy, I is just like to rest. A shadow drifted across their laps and they lifted their faces to the sky. A solitary buzzard had left the circle that hung high in the air all morning and was swinging back and forth over the road almost brushing the parapet of the roof as it passed. While Porgy and Bess looked, it suddenly raised the points of its wings, reached tentative legs downward, spread its feet wide, and lit on the edge of the roof directly over their room. "'My God!' exclaimed Maria, who was standing near. "'Crown done sent his buzzard back for bring trouble. "'Knock him off, Porgy. "'For God's sake, knock him off before he settle.' The cripple reached out and picked up a brickbat. The happiness had left his face and his eyes were filled with fear. With a swing of his long, powerful arm, he sent the missile on its errand. It struck the parapet directly beneath the bird. With a spasmodic flap of wings, the black body lifted itself a few feet from the building, then settled suddenly back. For a moment it hopped awkwardly about, as though the roof were red-hot beneath his feet then folded its wings, drew its nude head in upon its breast, and surveyed the court with its aloof, malevolent eyes. To row again, Maria called, handing Porgy another brickbat, but he seemed not to hear. His face quivered, and he hid it in his hands. Sonny, the big negress, called to a small boy who was standing near, looking at the bird with his mouth open. Get out of the roof! with a stick and run dat bird away but porgy plucked at her skirt and she looked down let him be he said in a hopeless voice it too late now ain't you see he done settle and he picked my room for light over it ain't no use now you knows that it ain't no use the next morning porgy sat in his accustomed place by archdale's door Autumn had touched the oaks in the park across the way, and they brushed the hard, bright sky with a slow, circling motion and tossed handfuls of yellow leaves down upon the pedestrians who stepped briskly along. 
King Charles Street was full of harrying men on their way to the cotton offices and the big wholesale warehouses that fronted on the wharves. Like the artery of a hale old man who has lain long asleep, but who wakens suddenly and springs into a race, the broad thoroughfares seemed to pound and sing with life. The town was in a generous mood. Again and again the bottom of Porky's cup gave its forth its sharp, grateful click as a coin struck it and settled. But the cripple had not even his slow glance of thanks for his benefactors on that flashing autumn morning. Always he kept veiled, apprehensive eyes directed either up or down the street, or lifted frightened glances to the sky as though fearing what he might see there. At noon a white man stopped before him, but he did not drop a coin and pass on. After a moment, Porgy brought his gaze back and looked up. The white man reached forward and handed him a paper. "'Death for me?' asked Porgy in a voice that shook. "'You needn't mind taking it,' the man assured him with a laugh. "'It's just a summons as a witness to the coroner's inquest. "'You knew that nigger a crown, didn't you?' "'He evidently took Porgy's silence for assent, for he went on. "'Well, all you got to do is to view the body in the presence of the coroner. "'Tell him who it is, and he'll take down all you say.' "'Porgy essayed speech, failed, tried again, and finally whispered, I gots to go on and look on crown face with all dem white folk looking at me. Dat it? His voice was piteous that the constable reassured him. Oh, cheer up. It's not so bad. I reckon you seen a dead nigger before this. It will all be over in a few minutes. Dey ain't going to be no nigger in dat room except me, Porgy asked. Just you and crown if you still call him one. After a moment, Porgy asked, I couldn't just bring a woman with me? I couldn't even bring, carry my, my woman? No, said the white man positively. Now, I've got to be getting along, I reckon. Just come over to the courthouse in half an hour, and I'll meet you and take you in. Only be sure to come. If you don't show up, it's jail for you, you know. For a moment after the man had gone, Porgy sat immovable with his eyes on the pavement. Then a sudden change swept over him. He cast one glance up and down the hard, clean street, walled by its uncompromising, many-eyed buildings. Then in a panic he clambered into his cart, gave a cruel twist to the tail of his astonished goat, and commenced a spasmodic shambling race up, up Meeting House Road, in the direction in which he knew that miles away the forest lay. To many, the scene which ensued on the upper meeting house road stands out as an exquisitely humorous episode to be told and retold with touchings of high lights and artistic embellishments. To these, in the eyes of whom the Negro is wholly humorous, per se, there was not the omission of a single conventional and readily recognizable stage property. For after all, what could have been funnier than an entirely serious race between a negro in a dilapidated goat-cart and the municipality's shiny new patrol wagon, fully officered and clanging his bell for the crowds to hear it as it came? The finish took place in the vicinity of the railway yards and factories, and the street was filled with workmen who smoked against the walls, or ate their lunch, sitting at the pavement's edge. 
grandstand seats as they were quite accurately described in the telling. The streetcars ran seldom that far out, and Porgy had the thoroughfare almost entirely to himself. His face wore a demented look, and was working pitifully. In his panic, he wrung the tail of his unfortunate beast without mercy. The lunchers along the pavement saw him coming and called to friends further along, so that as he came he was greeted with shouts of laughter and witty sallies from the crowd. Then the wagon appeared, a mere speck in the distance, but sending the sound of its bell before it as an advertisement of its presence. It grew rapidly until it reached the cheering crowds. Then it seemed that even the sedate officers of the law were not above a sly humor of their own, for the vehicle slackened its pace perceptibly and prolonged the final moment of capture. The big buildings had been left behind, and there lay before Porgy only the scattered cheap bungalows of the labor quarters and beyond. As elusive and desirable as the white man's heaven, glimmered the far line of the woods, misty and beautiful in the pink autumn haze. The patrol forged ahead and came to a clanging stop. The officers leaped out and amid shouts of laughter from the crowd, lifted wagon, goat, and man into the vehicle. The driver jerked the horse back into his breeches, swung the wagon with a dramatic snap that was not wasted upon his gallery, and sent it clanging and rocking back in the direction from which it had come. Porky fell forward with his arms thrown out upon the back of the goat and buried his face between them in the shaggy, evil-smelling hair. The workmen upon the sidewalks cheered and shouted with mirth. Surely it had been a great day. They would not soon have another laugh to match it. When the wagon reached the downtown district, the inquest was over. It had been a simple matter to secure another witness for the identification of the body. The jury had made short work of their task and had found that Crown had come to his death as the result of a chest wound at the hands of person or persons unknown. Porgy was taken at once to the station house, where the charge of a contempt of court was formally entered against him on the blotter, and he was locked up to await trial early the following morning. Under the wheezing gas jet, the recorder looked Porgy over with his weary glance, brought the tips of his slender fingers together, gave him five days in his tired drawl, and raised his eyes to the next negro on the morning's list. They hoisted the outfit, goat and all, into the patrol for the trip to the jail, thus again brightening a day for a group of light-hearted Nordics upon the pavement. A large, red-faced policeman took his seat at the rear of the wagon. "'You sure big doll,' he confided to Porgy, with a puzzled frown, "'running away like the devil was after you from being a witness, "'and now going to jail with a face like Sunday morning.' In the fresh beauty of an early October morning, Porgy returned home. There were few of his friends about, as work was now plentiful, and most of those who could earn a day's wage were up and out. He drove through the entrance, pulled his goat up short, and looked about him. Serena was seated on her bench with a baby in her arms. Porgy gave her a long look, and a question commenced to dawn in his eyes. The child turned in her arms, and his suspicions were confirmed. It was his baby, his and Bess's. Then Serena looked up and saw him. She arose in great confusion, 
clasped the infant to her ample bosom, and without a word of greeting stepped through her doorway. Then, as though struck by an afterthought, she turned, thrust her head back through the opening, and called loudly, Oh, Maria, here, Porky, come home. Then she disappeared, and the door slammed shut. Mystified and filled with alarm, Porgy turned his vehicle towards the cook shop and arrived at the door just as Maria stepped over the threshold. She seated herself on the sill and brought her face level with his. Then she looked into his eyes. What Porgy saw there caused him to call out sharply, "'Where's Bess? Tell me quick, where's Bess?' The big negress did not answer, and after a moment her ponderous face commenced to shake. Porgy beat the side of his wagon with his fists. "'Where? Where?' he began in a voice that was suddenly shrill. But Maria placed a steadying hand on his frantic one and held it still. "'Dem dirty dogs got she one day when I gone out,' she said in a low, shaken voice. "'She been missing you and very low in she mind cause she can't find out how long you's lock up for. "'Dat damn hound she knock off the wharf last summer?' Fine, she like that and get she to take a swallow of liquor. Didn't half a dozen of the men gang she and make she drunk. But where's she now? Porky cried. I ain't care if she was drunk. I want she now. Me Maria tried to speak, but her voice refused to do her bidding. She covered her face with her hands and her throat worked convulsively. Porky clutched her wrist. Tell me he commanded. Tell me now. Dim men's all carry she away on the river boat, she sobbed. They leave word for me that they going to take she all the way to Savannah and keep she there. Then Serena, she take the child and she's going to give him a Christian raisin. Deep sobs stopped Maria's voice. For a while she sat there, her face buried in her hands, but Porgy had nothing to say. When she finally raised her head and looked at him, she was surprised at what she saw. The keen autumn sun flooded boldly through the entrance and bathed the drooping form of the goat, and the ridiculous wagon and the bent figure of the man in hard, satirical radiance. In his revealing light, Maria saw that Porgy was an old man. The early tension that had characterized him, the mellow mood that he had known for one eventful summer, both had gone, and in their place she saw a face that sagged wearily, and the eyes of age lit only by a faint reminiscent glow from suns and moons that had looked into them and had already drooped down the west. She looked until she could bear the sight no longer. Then she stumbled into her shop and closed the door, leaving Porgy and the goat alone in an irony of morning sunlight. End of section seven. End of Porgy by DeBose Hayward.